I think it's really difficult, and, and I certainly still struggle with this as well, that we want to be thankful and grateful for what we have. So we want to spend time in that state. But when we do feel stressed or overwhelmed or whatever's going on, I think it's really important to lean into that and see that it's an opportunity for us to learn and make an adjustment. You're listening to Muscle Medicine, where we debunk the myths in the health and wellness world to bring you the latest updates in exercise, rehab, and nutrition from industry leaders. Join your host, Dr. Emily Kyburn, chiropractor and movement expert, as she brings you simple, actionable tips to reach your fullest potential. So we have Dr. Heidi Hanna on the Muscle Medicine Podcast today. I'm super excited to sit down and chat about your specialty, which is stress and kind of how to fall in love with stress. <laughs> that sounds so funny. Well, it is a codependent, rocky relationship. I can tell you that I have a lot of experience with. So personally and professionally, it's become a bit of an obsession of mine. So I'm excited to talk to you about it. Nice. And you are a integrative neuroscience researcher and the executive director of the American Institute of Stress. So you've been That's in right. this world for a long time. I have. And I would say that my journey definitely started mostly based on my own kind of mess, my stress mess, as I like to call it. I think a lot of us end up in helping professions because we struggled and we don't want other people to suffer the way we have. And I also say, be careful what you claim to be an expert at because you get tested all the time. So just <laughs> when I think I've got stress down and I have this healthy, you know, stressing is a blessing relationship that I like to put out there, then it kind of comes up and surprises me. So right now I'm working, uh, I do ongoing research and I'm really blessed to have some great collaborators and we explore the role of particularly chronic stress on the brain and on our health and our performance. And I do a lot of applied research where I'm actually working with organizations to help them better understand stress and really learn how to go from managing it, which is kind of an old model of what I feel like is pushing it away or pushing it down and all the problems that come from that to really learning how to master it and use the energy and information that stress provides to actually fuel positive change. Because as you know, exercise physiology, we know that stress is really just challenge. It's stimulus for growth. It's something that we need. But there's a big difference between that kind of intentional, acute, short-term stress and what most of us deal with every day, the nagging, chronic, I just don't have enough time to get it all done kind of stress. Yeah. So let's unpack this. How does chronic stress specifically affect the brain and the body? So I would like to start with that, really kind of separating that acute versus chronic. So again, for listeners who may not be as familiar, acute stress is more short term and it activates the sympathetic nervous system, which is most people know of it's kind of our fight or flight mechanism, gives us some great energy and it stays in the system for a pretty short period of time. So if someone has stress, for example, about giving a presentation or having a difficult conversation with somebody, they get that rush and we could even you know, change the framework and say it could be excitement or arousal or in a positive situation, it could be passion but it's still activating that sympathetic nervous system, which causes our heart rate to go up, our blood pressure to go up. It actually enhances performance in the short term. So it improves our immune functioning. It improves our memory, our focus, our attention. 
And I think sometimes the benefits of that type of stress are what also get us hooked on it because we become kind of dependent on stress and stimulation for energy because we're so tired a lot of the time spreading ourselves too thin that we start to kind of depend on the adrenaline rush to be able to focus and pay attention. So short-term helpful, what happens for most people though, is it starts to shift into that chronic nagging, kind of pushing it down and embodied stress. And when that happens, it actually activates a slower system that includes the HPA axis, starts to initiate the release of cortisol, which I think most people by now are familiar with cortisol. I also Uh think that we don't totally understand it because we tend to blame everything on it. So it's like cortisol is this bad thing and we want to get rid of it, but we actually need it. And studies have shown that if you have the right amount of cortisol and the right timing of even a traumatic experience, it can reduce the impact of like post-traumatic stress disorder. So everything in balance is designed to help us to, to function well and to thrive. And even that chronic stress response that I call reactions, even that is helpful because if we really are in an emergency, we need that, you know, slower metabolic shutdown. Immune function actually starts to decrease. Our focus and attention starts to decrease. It's like our whole body goes into conservation mode um, because we're not really sure how long it's going to last. And I think what a lot of people end up dealing with then is this reverse pattern. And I'm sure you're familiar with this, but if you look at cortisol, for example, um, in a natural, healthy pattern, our cortisol is high in the morning to help us wake up. It's low in the evening as melatonin increases and allows us to fall asleep. But most people today actually have a reverse cortisol pattern that's making them feel really tired in the morning and then feel tired and wired at night and not able to fall asleep. So I think an an easy way to think about it is everything that happens as part of these stress reaction systems are designed to help us. The problem is when we don't get appropriate recovery, when we don't allow ourselves to get the rest we need, when we don't repair our body with healthy food, adequate sleep, so important. If we're not really prioritizing social relationships, things like that that help us to repair, then that chronic stress system gets hijacked and and get stuck. And that's where we run into a lot of problems. Yeah. Can you physically look at someone and be like, yeah, they're in this, this chronic stress cycle. Their, their threshold is really, (laughs) can you like physically see on the outside symptoms of this? There's definitely symptoms. So I think I'm, I'm probably more tuned into that than most people. Yeah. I would say that I tend to feel it before I actually mm. cognitively know what's going on. And a lot of times it's those people that come to me and they want to talk about it and they either are agitated. So they're so like amped up on stress that I can tell they're in this more hijacked state you know, even like voice intonation, like just talking quickly and the breath rate starts to get short and shallow. And we can actually pick that up from each other. I talk about the fact that stress is super contagious. So I tend to feel it with somebody. I'm also highly sensitive. And so I, I can pick those things up from people. But a lot of times too, it's what they start talking about. So usually they're not talking about stress, but they're talking about that they can't sleep at night, They're having trouble losing weight, even though they feel like they're doing everything right. They're feeling chronic fatigue during the day or or memory. Like that's a big one that shows up is they have brain fog. So because I do teach a lot on brain fitness and teaching people how to optimize performance by training their brain, 
this one probably shows up the most where people say, I'm afraid I have Alzheimer's or dementia because I just can't remember things. Well, the reality is everyone's, everyone's trying to cram in so much content at any given time and like keep up with all the technology and the stimulation that our brains are just really tired. They're not getting you know, the downtime that they need. And so, so I think it shows up usually through what people say and kind of what their key complaints are. And I can always, not intentionally, but it's just kind of the way it shows up. I can always take that back to not having healthy oscillation, you know, not getting the rest time, not recharging the brain and the body the way that we're supposed to be. Can you break down how stress is processed in the brain? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So one of my favorite things to look at, and this actually comes from the amazing work of Bruce McEwen, who's at Rockefeller University and has become a good friend of mine. I always recommend people look up his research and he's got some great lectures online as well for people who want to go a little bit deeper with this. But he really talks about the brain as the primary organ of stress and how we receive and perceive information. So the brain is essentially like modulating our stress reactions and it's doing that based on information it's receiving from the body. So a lot of that information is driven by our heart rate and our breathing rate. And we know there's actually a cluster of neurons in the base of the brain that receive information from the heart. So how the heart is beating will dictate the way that the brain is perceiving our current situation, which is why breath work is so important and posture is so important and consistent movement is so important. So the brain starts to pick up that information from the body primarily, and it actually does that through kind of three different levels. And it's been explained as like the triune brain. A lot of people have heard of the base of the brain being called like the lizard brain, the midsection being the monkey brain and the top surrounding section is being the human part of the brain. And although the brain isn't really like organized into these very super specific regions, it can help people with that framework to understand that there is a hierarchy. So the brain is receiving information first from that lizard brain, which is sensing and then the monkey brain, which is feeling, and then the human brain, which is thinking. And the reason that's important is because of those patterns. Like I mentioned before, like if your heart is beating in a chaotic fashion, if you're breathing in a short, shallow fashion, if you're holding tightness or tension in your body, those are the first signals that are going to be picked up by the brain to say there's a potential threat in the environment, because otherwise we wouldn't be physically reacting in that way. And then based on that, we start to feel certain emotions and kind of the midsection of our brain that tend to be more fear-based emotions. And for the most part, when we're stuck in that state, the thinking part of our brain just goes offline. Like we can't think clearly. And you can actually see in brain scans and like fMRI scans that the activation of the brain gets more dense in those primal parts of the brain and actually starts to atrophy or you're like not getting the same. I was talking about, it's like your energy has been cut off to the part of your brain that makes you human. So it's why so many people are running around. Sorry, I just have to say this, but like acting like monkeys all the time. <laughs> and, you know, 
know what I mean? And I, <clears throat> I love monkeys. Yeah, I but know you do. So many of us are running around in our monkey minds because literally the energy and information that's being processed through these stress reactions is saying you don't have time to be patient, loving, and kind. You need to react. And that's really the difference between reacting, which is more primal brain, and responding, which is I'm going to actually get into a calm, relaxed, parasympathetic state where all of this energy blood flow is going throughout my whole brain so that I can make whole brain responses. I can problem solve more effectively and I can be the type of person that I want to be. So one thing I'll just add to that is as all of that is happening, which really fascinating is that we start to see changes happen to the brain. So there's kind of like state changes that happen in the moment, like that blood flow, you know, being course corrected in the moment. But then over time, because the brain is adaptable, it starts to, to change in the structure, function, and chemistry. And that's where you really have these more ongoing kind of trait problems. And there's three parts of the brain that are primarily affected by that long-term. The hippocampus and in in where the midsection of the brain, which is responsible for memory and learning, is really important to be able to self-regulate. So you start to see hippocampal atrophy. So it's your hippocampus isn't working as well. So that brain fog is actually a real thing because the connections aren't being made between the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex that makes us human and problem solve. But at the same time, you get increased activation and increased connectivity between the hippocampus and the amygdala. So it's like the fear center of the brain is actually working better and having stronger connections to memory. So you're more easily reactive, but the part between memory and the logical, rational part of the brain is not working as well. Mm. And so I think about it a lot like muscles, right? It's just like training our physical body. We want our muscles to work well to help us do what we want to do. So it's important with the brain to do the same, to really train what intentionally we want and be careful that we're not accidentally training what we don't want. Yeah. So how do we train? Let's say we are in a more reaction habit pattern, like Uh react to stress versus a respond. How can we start to shift that? There's a lot of different interventions out there, as I'm sure everybody's aware. And I think what is most helpful is if we understand the way that the brain is processing all of this, then we should probably train it according to the way that the brain wants to receive information. (laughs) And I find this actually really helpful. So if we go back to that sensing and then feeling and then thinking, we really need to get into a sensory state of calm before we try to think differently. And I think a lot of people want to try to change their mindset with cognitive training, with thoughts. You know, if I just think differently, then I'll feel differently and I'll act differently. Well, actually, if you act differently, you'll feel differently and you'll probably think differently. That is the hierarchy of how the brain is organized. So it's why physical activity, massage, posture, breath work, even sensory activation like aromatherapy, I have a infrared sauna in my house. It's actually one I can lie down on because I have a condition called vasovagal syndrome, which is part of my whole stress story, but essentially part of an anxiety condition I grew up with and I'll faint if I get overactivated. So for me, if I want to really change my state, it helps me to lie on the floor and get really grounded. Spending time in nature, listening to music or sound therapy, all of that changes how we're sensing 
our safety in the moment. And once that happens, then we can start to shift our feelings and start to activate that logical part of our mind to shift our mindset. So I use a framework and a process I call the brain recharge process, which is essentially going through exactly that. So you sense first and then you feel and then you think. And the super easy way to do that is through breathing, feeling gratitude, and then focusing on an intention or a mantra. So let's say I woke up as I usually do and I want to be patient, loving and kind because I think that's who I'm designed to be. And quickly I get hijacked because I feel like, oh my gosh, I have to do a podcast and I'm not sure if it's on video and I'm not planning on doing my hair or makeup today. <laughs> I mean, that may seem like a little thing, but it's funny how those can cause us to spiral if we're not careful. And then you stop, you notice the reaction happening, probably feeling it in your body, stop and do that very quick, breathe, feel, focus. So connecting with your breath, which ideally is in and out to a count of about five. So you're breathing into about five, out to about five, just nice and natural and slow and calm. And then try to shift to a state of a positive emotion. And one of the easiest, quickest ways to do that is gratitude. So instead of focusing on the concerns, try to feel grateful for something. And it could be something really simple in the moment. And then as your brain is coming back online, then you focus on your intention. So the intention in this case may be not to be concerned about those things, to problem solve, which I did, send an email to the podcast host and just ask the question before I freak out. <laughs> and then problem solve from there, but really focus on how I want to show up yeah. and being fully present in the moment. And really that takes practice because everything in our world right now is about multitasking, hustling, hacking. It's all like super amped up, sympathetic nervous system, and we just can't sustain that. So we have to build these brain recharge practices into our day consistently. I love that. Do you know why certain high performers will show up to stress and feel a certain way? So I think of like the Navy SEALs, like mm -hmm. there's gunfire all around them flying past them and they feel calm steady like laser focused whereas you know you take anyone else and they'd be like <laughs> stressed out and freaking out sure. maybe to yeah. the point of paralysis is it you know i just think oh they're born differently or they're wired differently but is there an explanation for that there is. And, you know, having spent time with some Navy SEALs, I can tell you there are two very different types, even within a population like that, or with yeah. some of the athletes that I've worked with. Yeah. There are some that are truly some of the most calm, in parasympathetic almost all of the time. I would say hardwired to be that way because we do know there's a lot of genetic predispositions around this. Yeah. And we often in the research world talk about it as being orchids versus dandelions. There are some people that have a genetic predisposition to sensitivity. I mentioned I'm a highly sensitive person. It's a genetic trait in some people where they're actually processing stress and stimulation deeper into the brainstem and into the body. So those types of people tend to be very creative, very empathetic, very in tune with nature. 
and sensitive to the point that if they are experienced a lot of stimulation can get easily hijacked by that. And there's other people who have really the opposite. They have resilient genes that allow them to be in those situations and stay pretty calm. So sometimes it's that, sometimes it is a mindset training that they go through to really see stress as positive and to be able to access that in a positive way. So seeing the adrenaline rush, for example, as a positive necessary thing in that moment that's going to help them to survive. The challenge I see a lot of times is that when you have people in situations like that that aren't getting adequate recovery, no matter what, they can actually start to become addicted to the adrenaline rush. They can need it. They can crave it. I unfortunately know a lot of people who are unable to adapt back to normal life. So they thrive in war or they thrive in serious competition, but you take that away and it's like now they become anxious. Like they need the the drive of the adrenaline and all of that. So, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I think it's important for each of us to kind of understand our genetic makeup, I have a stress 360 assessment that I have people take that looks at not just the stress they're dealing with, but also the stress lens that they have. So their genetic predispositions, um, their mindset, things that we know can change. And I would also say that with people in peak performance situations, a lot of it is training. So it really is like ritualized, very specific that you do all of the time so that there's not a lot of even needing logical thought processes to make choices, it's really reacting. Athletes, I can think of, I worked with some professional golfers, and like for them, being in a calm parasympathetic state is actually really important because it changes the way that our muscles move through the swing. So it's not that they're super chillaxed laying on the beach, but they're in parasympathetic, so their muscles move differently. And if they were activated the same way that a seal was, for example, their muscles wouldn't function the way that they need them to. So I, I, I guess I just, I think it's important for anyone who's listening to really understand like what your makeup is, what your intentions are, how do you want to show up? And then you can intentionally use that kind of high energy activation stress, adrenaline, you can use that as something positive to fuel performance as long as you build in the adequate recovery. And then when you're in other situations where you really want to be calm and grounded and connected with another human being. You don't want to be activated by adrenaline. Like if you're hanging out playing with your kids or trying to focus on a conversation, that takes training too. So I think it's it's really being able to train both of those states and use them in the right amounts and the right situations to fuel whatever it is that we want to accomplish. Yeah. I think an interesting parallel is, you know, in the physical body, when we work with any sort of like high performers, whether it's sprinters or jujitsu guys is they can build tension really quickly mm-hmm. and then they can go into the relaxation state equally as quickly. So they don't build tension and then stay tense. The really high level athletes and the performers go into that relaxation state as quickly as they could like throw a punch. 
So, and that right there is actually the measure of resilience, right? So yeah. we know that heart rate variability, for example, is not having a low or high heart rate. It's the beat to beat changes between each pulse, you know, between the sympathetic and parasympathetic is like, is that a smooth, flexible curve where you're getting adequate recovery for the stress that's happening on your cardiovascular system? Like that's an easy measure to see. Or I know, cause I, I was a personal trainer and a group fitness instructor in my previous life. And I remember testing, like, how quickly can people get back to that resting state after challenging themselves? That's resilient. So it's not not having stress. It's can you turn on that relaxation or recovery response? And everyone needs that throughout their day. So one of the things I always encourage people to do is really like do a timeline of your day and look at where you're feeling stressed or simulated and where you're building in some sort of recovery or recharge practice. And most people are going to find that they're flatlining. So they get up, they grab coffee, they go, they're rushing out the door. Maybe they don't even eat anything because they're so busy, but then they come home and they kind of crash because there hasn't been any oscillation. And so, you know, the way I look at it, I always recommend with my clients that every hour they're trying to build in three to five minutes of a recovery practice or a recharge technique. I've mentioned what some of those are, but there's also like guided meditations you can listen to to just keep kind of resetting your system. And then also anchoring your day, like starting your day in that state and having an intentional mindful practice to get your brain plugged in. So I would think about like the brain being like a cell phone battery. And when our cell phones run out of battery, we panic, but like our brains <laughs> run out of battery and we just beat ourselves up about not, you know, having a good enough memory or focus or attention or whatever it might be, or we grab caffeine or sugar to try to focus. So like being intentional, how are you plugging in in the morning to what's most important to you and doing that brain recharge practice? I always recommend 15 to 20 minutes. And then again at night, like unplugging, how are you preparing your brain to be able to sleep? Because most people just go and go and go until they crash. They wake up an hour later. Now they can't sleep. So they get up and they do some work and like our cycles are so thrown off. But you really, if you're going at a, a pace like that, you need to also prepare your brain to come back down and quiet and calm so that you can actually sleep and have restorative sleep. Yeah. What do you think about technology in the world of like maybe giving biofeedback or helping mm -hmm. regulate stress? The things that come to mind are like, the Muse, mm -hmm. or there's even like a kind of like a Fitbit, but it's called a Spire, mm -hmm. and it tracks your kind of your breathing rates, and you can kind of track, hey, when am I hyperventilating, yeah. which might be more yeah. of like a stress response. What's your thought on those kind of devices? So kind of two thoughts on that. I guess probably because I'm highly sensitive, I feel like there's already too much kind of technology and simulation and tracking and hacking in this world. So I'd love to see people just like go hang out in nature a little bit more. But I also believe that awareness is super important. And I have found working with HeartMath as one of the kind of preferred heart rate variability devices that I use is really helpful to give people that awareness. And also when they're training proactively, they can see this heart rate variability starting to show up. They can see when they're in a state of what we would call coherence, which is kind of that optimal level of engagement, but kind of a relaxed engagement. And I've used that with a lot of my athletes as well. So because they like tracking everything and they can see their progress over time, I think that that can be super helpful. I think there's a lot of things that come onto the market because it's so important right now that we are paying attention that they don't always give us the most accurate data. 
So I think it's helpful to look at a lot of these as like probably giving you some awareness, not necessarily clinically validated data that you would be looking at, but if it's helpful for you and it helps you to pay attention and helps you to like commit to doing the work and getting that feedback, I think it's super helpful. And I certainly go through periods of time where I'll, I'll use it again. I use inner balance by heart math. And I know there's some other really good ones out there as well. And you can also share that with a coach or somebody like have an accountability partner who can keep you on track with actually doing the practice. I think that can be really helpful. Uh, how does someone know if their stress is having a positive impact? Like they're more productive, they're showing up to maybe a big meeting or a big talk and really potentially that stress is helping them bring their best self versus stress bringing to them a place of multitasking, which can feel super productive, but uh, may not be. I always kind of go back to someone's ability to relax and recover. Like, can they do that when they need to? And also the reality of knowing that we need to be doing that multiple times during the day. So I've had a lot of people who've said like, I can sleep four hours a night and I do great. And we just know, you know, statistically that that's not the case. I mean, they still probably are doing great, but they'd be doing so much more great (laughs) if they were sleeping at least (laughs) six or seven hours. And they'd be sustaining their long-term health. A lot of those people have actually come back. Some of them actually military, elite military professionals who came back later and said, oh, you were right because now I'm having all of these problems. And maybe I should have been sleeping a little bit more. But (laughs) it's hard to pay attention to what's like further out, of course. Otherwise, we'd all be eating and and working out and doing things better because we'd have that immediate impact. So I think the way to think about that is partially what is our experience when it's happening? So am I experiencing it as excitement, passion, enthusiasm? Like what are the words I'm using to frame my experience? Because that actually has a big impact as well. And am I able to turn it off? So I wrote a book called Stressaholic, one of my books. And the whole notion around that is that we do get to the point where it's hard to turn it off, even when we know we should, because stress is actually very addictive to the reward pathways in the brain. So that tends to be my first question with someone when they say, oh my gosh, I think I'm a stress addict. Well, if someone says that, usually they are. But if they're not sure, then I'll say, well, let's just close our eyes and pay attention to our breath for a couple of minutes and people just like it's so uncomfortable so if like quieting yourself down paying attention to your breath sitting at a stoplight without checking your cell phone if any of that feels uncomfortable you're probably overactivated and you've become dependent on that and so I think that's kind of one just quick check that people can do with themselves yeah Uh, and then also probably just the awareness that all of these other things play a role so if weight gain or the inability to lose weight or chronic fatigue or difficulty sleeping, skin conditions, digestive conditions, like everything at the root is usually facilitated by some sort of stress imbalance. So if you're noticing those types of things, the quicker you notice them, the the quicker you can make an adjustment. But I think paying attention to those types of signs and symptoms can be helpful as well. When I was a kid, when I would get stressed, Mm -hmm. I would try to change my perspective. Mm. And I saw you talk about this a little bit in your, in your TEDx, but when I was a kid, I would think stressed about something, whatever it is. And I'd be like, but you know what? There's like homeless, starving right. children in Africa. Like get yeah. basically like kind of like get over yourself. This oh, is yeah. no big deal. Is there a detriment to kind of 
defaulting to that, that patterning? Yeah, I think that there has to be a fine balance there. I think it's really difficult, and and I certainly still struggle with this as well, that we want to be thankful and grateful for what we have. So we want to spend time in that state. But when we do feel stressed or overwhelmed or whatever's going on, I think it's really important to lean into that and see that it's an opportunity for us to learn and make an adjustment. So the stress mastery formula that I teach in my programs and with our stress mastery professionals is to assess, appreciate and adjust what's going on. And that stressing really is a blessing. Like the whole activation of the nervous system is trying to help us. And so when we experience that and we immediately cut ourselves off and say, well, you know, other people have it worse than I I do. Who am I to take care of myself? Like we're not actually getting the lesson that's intended by our own experience. There's a reason that that's happening. Like we only experience stress when we perceive that demand exceeds capacity. So what is that about? And one of the easiest ways that we begin to transform our experience with stress is to just ask that question, just to get curious, which was kind of the theme of my TEDx talk, when we get curious and we can lean into it and say, what is this trying to teach me? What could I learn from this? What might I do differently to actually use this excitement or stimulation that I'm feeling in my body in a more positive way? We now use it. It doesn't hurt us anymore. I think that that's important. And I think we get taught these lessons very young. I think oftentimes because our parents or whoever is kind of teaching or training us when we're children isn't really sure what to do and they don't want us to suffer. So they just want to move us out of that as quickly as possible by giving us, you know, an easy answer. You have so much to be grateful for. And that's not really, I don't feel like that's, that's not even the question. It's not like you feel stressed because you're not grateful. You're stressed because you've got too much to do or who knows what's going on, but there's something in that that's a lesson for us. And I think if we can lean into that and learn from it, then we can actually utilize it in a positive way. And it doesn't hurt us anymore. It actually starts to help us. Yeah. What would you tell the parents that have kids? So like I have a three-year-old, what would I, like, what would you Mm. encourage the parents to do with their kids to have a good relationship with stress as they get older? Cause it's inevitable (laughs) and encouraged, but um, Yeah. yeah. What would you tell the parents? I think it's important, depending on the age, of course, first of all, to really provide a sense of safety. So remember that anything logical that we're telling someone, if they're not sensing safety in their body, they can't do anything with it. So if a child is feeling whatever they're feeling, they need to be acknowledged for that and know that they're in a safe space and that they're, they're loved. So that may seem so like common sense, but I think a lot of times we skip that and go straight to fixing it. Yeah. I think if we create the safe space, if we show up fully present and we can listen and allow that curiosity to show up. So what is that about? What is going on? Help kids start to label it for what it actually is. Are you tired? Is it something you ate? Is there something emotional going on? Like, let's figure out what's happening. And then that that middle section, so in the formula, I talk about assess, appreciate, adjust. I think the appreciation part is, is massive because it's actually what changes the brain the most is what's good about that. So before you start to adjust it or fix it, what's helpful about that situation? Like if we can shift to a state of appreciation, even of a negative experience, totally changes everything. So the example I like to think about with kids is bullying. 
you know, if they're being bullied, they probably don't have control over that situation. And you as a parent probably don't have control over that situation. So what's happening? Why are we feeling this way? And let's think about how there's a positive lesson in this. And now what could we do? Like we may not be able to fix the bullying, but one of the things that's been shown in the research with kids who are in situations like that is one of the best things you can do is actually show them that their actions matter. And so you do that by having them volunteer or write a thank you note to a teacher, do something positive for someone else. And you start to see that your choices and your actions have an impact, even though it's not towards the stressor, it starts to build capacity. It starts to build resilience. It it starts to alleviate learned helplessness. And I think that's part of the issue right now is that when we move too quickly to try to like fix it for them or pull them out of their uncomfortable state because it's uncomfortable to us, we give them a sense of learned helplessness that they can't problem solve and that they don't have any coping resources. So as much as we can train coping, train the things that we should be doing too, the breathing, the meditation, listening to music, getting outside to play, like understanding there's things in life we can't control, understanding there's painful things that happen in life. And there's a lot of things that feel unfair and it's okay to feel that and to know that our actions can have a positive impact. And so we can make choices to build our own capacity by serving others. And that really, I think, builds resilience and what I think of as like effective adaptability to stress throughout our lives. I love that. That's so great. Do people, or when you work with people, do sometimes people get stuck in the adjust phase? So mm-hmm. let's say people are realizing that they're stressed at work because they're not in a job that they like. And then to mm-hmm. adjust it would be not only to ask themselves, what do I really want to be doing with my yeah. hours in my day? And how do I make that shift can also bring on like <laughs> heightened yes. stress. Yep. How do you help people maybe break through or... Maybe it means just like sitting in the discomfort of it for a while. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think pieces of it are, I think in everything there's a lesson. And I think that there are kind of short-term and long-term fixes. So really getting someone into that state of feeling safe, being connected to the present moment, being in a, in a situation where like they've done a brain recharge practice and their brain is totally online. And so now they're using all of their resources to really think through this for a moment and ask the question, you know, what's really happening? Why am I feeling this way? What's the potential lesson here? Mm -hmm. And then what I tend to move towards is that adjustment is taking imperfect action, but it's taking some sort of action. So in that case, like I have actually worked in a lot of my corporate work with clients who've decided to leave their job. And I always kind of laugh about that because the company's paying me to come in and train their employees on peak performance and they decide to leave. (laughs) And there's nothing more expensive to a company than an employee that doesn't want to be there. Like there's all sorts of issues around that. So I tell people that if it's very clear to you that that's the adjustment that needs to happen, then honestly, the sooner you make that change, the better. But it is important to think through how to make that change in a successful way. And I think that if you can keep your brain from being hijacked, you can see the bigger picture. You may decide that it's not this year, but while I'm here, I'm going to start doing some other things that are helping me explore what I might enjoy doing. So there's a lot of like taking actions that you can do that empower you to be moving towards a change without just like dramatically making a change. Yeah. Um, 
And I think this is where too, like coaching and accountability and social support is so critical. We have an epidemic right now of loneliness. We have a lot of people who are connecting and totally disconnected. We increase someone's capacity to cope as soon as we're sitting with them or someone is sitting with them. Having someone you trust to even just talk through those types of situations, if it really is a big life change, can really help people to cope with it more effectively. And that's an example where it may be stressful, but it's not causing you to be stressed out. Yeah. Big difference, right? Between stressed and stressed out. Stressed out is the long-term negative adaptation that happens when we're not taking some sort of action and feeling that we have some control over our environment. Yeah, I love it. So much good information. Where can people find you? Well, so the easiest place is probably my website, which is HeidiHanna.com. And I will also share that if people do want to take the Stress 360 survey, we have that. It's a free, just short assessment that helps people understand kind of their current stress situation. And that's at MyStress360.com. And when they do that, they'll get their results. They also get a couple of free training videos, like my brain recharge process. And yeah, it's a good place. Social media, all that good jazz. We actually have an online stress mastery course that is rolling out as well as stress mastery professional certificate training. So if people want to learn more about it, certainly love to hear from them. Yeah. Amazing. And you have a podcast. And I have a podcast. <laughs> don't remind me of all the things that I've been trying to keep up with. <laughs> so much. I didn't have to do my hair. <laughs> so much great content out there. I love that yeah. there's like the practitioner side mm. and then there's the everyday Joe side too. Yeah, I love there it. There is so much need out there right now. And uh, unfortunately, we know that depression and anxiety are leading causes of disability. And there's a huge connection with chronic stress and how the brain shapes to end up in these imbalanced states for a lot of people. So we're, we're definitely trying to build up a tribe of people who are willing to go out and share the hope that there's a lot we can do about this. If, you know, we can learn how to really like become friends with our brain and our nervous system, instead of trying to hijack it or hack it, we need to yeah. heal it. Yeah. yeah. I love it. Such a strong message. Thank you so Thanks, much. Emily. Yeah. It was great chatting with you. You too. Thank you.